You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Brandon. How has your week been going? Yeah, it's been going well. Been You've, going uh, well. Your, your, your channel is uh, exploding this week. Oh, I know. How crazy is it? It's just That's just the way of YouTube, isn't it, though? You yeah. can have some months where you just... You seem you feel like you're going nowhere and then other months where it just happens all at once. And I think the whole well, I've just been making videos lately following this GameStop controversy mm. because it's quite interesting. Um, and I've just kind of been making videos as new new information comes out. And yeah, um, stock market controversies, that's where it's at, apparently. <laughs> yeah. You know what it is? You you had that first video on GameStop that exploded. And yeah. because of that, I reckon every single one that you've made since then that's even slightly related has just been put in recommendations for everyone who's exactly, seen yeah. the first one. Yeah. And that's just kind of a compounding effect that's happened it is. over the past few videos that you've you've put out related to yeah. this whole thing that's really been going for like two weeks now. Yeah. But no, I exactly guess, right. Yeah. There's that's definitely the way YouTube works. Like once you get a, a big viral video, if you get hundreds of thousands of views, then you know the next video you upload is going to be recommended to a lot of the people that just yeah. watched your most recent video. So that's why when you're on a roll, you got to try and stay on a roll. You got to make sure that next video is as good as possible, so that people also also want to watch that next one. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, just crazy how it how it works with YouTube and. And kind of the the system behind it, but yeah, it de- it definitely is the case where if you're on a roll, you can really be on a roll, and yeah. and the opposite, if you're not on a roll, you can really not be <laughs> going anywhere. Um, that is yeah. certainly true, and we've got some more updates around GameStop today. Some yeah, more definitely. news happening out of that, and of course, the rest of today's podcast will be covering a couple of earnings mm. and uh, some big news out of Amazon that I'm sure a lot of people yes. have seen. But we'll get to all of that. Uh, right after we go through our sponsored segment. So today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite. Uh, So ShareSite is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio. And it will basically allow you to keep track of all of the different types of gains. So capital gains, dividends. If you have dividend reinvestment plans on your ETFs or individual stocks, it will do all of those calculations for you, which is a lifesaver. Currency gains, if you're buying shares internationally or hold foreign currencies. And then the main reason why I've personally been using it for the past four years is when it comes to tax time. So ShareSite generates up to 10 different reports that can be used at tax time to work out things such as your capital gains, dividend income, and more. And at the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to sharesite.com forward slash young investors. That's site spelled S-I-G-H-T, sharesite.com forward slash young investors. You can use that link to sign up to a free plan and use it for as long as you want. Try it for the next year if you want, two years, however long you want. Uh, and if you want to sign up to a paid plan to get access to all of the features or more features, then you can also use that link to get four months off a yearly subscription. So it's a great deal for our viewers, our listeners here. So go check it out if you're interested. Definitely. Yeah. Hey, where should we start? Should we start with the big news out of Amazon or should we start just doing an update on GameStop? What do you reckon? Yeah. 
Our, look, let's let's start with um, let's start with Amazon because yeah. th- while this is a big news story, there isn't a whole lot to talk about it. So, oh, okay. um, th- I mean, there's there's a few things we can discuss, but as I'm sure many are aware, Jeff Bezos uh, announced in their Amazon's fourth quarter earnings that he is stepping down as CEO. Which that, immediately wow. when you when you see that headline, it's a bit of a shock headline, but it shocked me. It, it is. It, it's kind of like, whoa, wait, is he leaving the company? Is he going to, is he selling all his stock? Is he, <laughs> is he selling yeah. all his houses? Like, <laughs> yeah. mustard? no, but it kind of makes you feel as though he's stepping completely away from the business, which I'll spoiler it, is not true, but um, right. it, it does make a, does make a nice headline and offer for a video. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. When I saw that, I was, I was very much uh, taken by surprise it's just nothing that I would have expected. I mean, it seems yeah. as though Jeff Bezos has been very happy at the helm of Amazon and he's it's, it's his baby, you know. He's worked on it for so yeah. long um, and he's been the chief executive for so long that, you know, I just did not see it coming. And I don't think there was any hints, uh, any leaks beforehand that this might happen. Uh, I think it kind of just got dumped on us. Yeah, that's actually yeah. true. There wasn't any leaks at all, which usually there is when something mm. like this is going on because usually they're prepping the person who's going to replace them for a long time. So, there's kind of rumors floating around the executives and that kind of gets out mm. about someone moving on or, or moving on at some point in the future. But yeah, they did a good job at um, keeping it kind of under wraps. But yeah. um, basically, they obviously released their fourth quarter results and they announced in that that Jeff Bezos will be replaced by Andy Jassy. Uh, I think is how you pronounce that. The Jass um, Man. The Jass Man. So, um, <laughs> of course, the first thing I wanted to do was have a look at who this person is, um, see if he stacks up. Pretty hard to stack up <laughs> compared, compared to Compa- Jeff Bezos. Compared to Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Jeez, that's a tough job. Yeah. Big shoes to fill. Yeah, um, definitely. But um, no, he, he's not an outsider. He's been at Amazon since 1997. So pretty much wow. since uh, very early on when Amazon started. I think they started in mid the mid-90s. 19, so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Either way, he's been there for almost 25 years. Um, he actually founded Amazon Web Services, which is their cloud business. So, um, he was the head of the team that developed that. And um, as we will discuss in Amazon's earnings, which we're about to get to, uh, Amazon's Web Services is a huge part of their profitability now. Um, very, very profitable business. And it's one of the fastest growing parts of their business. So, um, he led that. And then he's also been uh, the CEO of Amazon Web Services since 2016. Um, right. So, basically, he founded one of their biggest components. And for the past four years, he's been the CEO of that major segment. Mm. Um, so, he's certainly not an outsider. He's certainly not some random guy that's just coming in to replace Jeff Bezos. It's mm. clearly someone that Bezos trusts um, and those two have probably worked very, very closely over the past couple of decades. And I like to see that. I do. I don't know what your kind of thoughts and opinions are on this, but I rarely am happy when I see like an outside CEO brought in to a, to the company to take over. Yeah. Um, like the same with Disney, how um, Bob Iger stepped down and Bob Chapek, who was the head of mm. the Parks Experiences Resorts, um, he came up into the CEO position. I like it when... Um, 
yeah, when the when the new CEO has already worked in that environment, in that company, alongside the old CEO for like a very long time. And I think this is exactly the case. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like obviously it's a team effort, but he is, he's certainly going to be a competent manager if he is if he founded AWS and built yeah. it up and CEO of AWS since 2016. AWS is such a success story uh, for Amazon. So um, it sounds like like I'll be perfectly honest. I don't even know who Andy Jassy is, but it sounds like just from the track record and he's been there for a long time. It seems like he's worked very closely with Jeff Bezos for a long time um, and probably knows the company quite well. Um, so yeah, I certainly like to see, uh, someone from within the company rise up and, you know, get groomed to become the next CEO as opposed to, uh, you know, oh, we've got a big time CEO stepping down. We better go find another big time CEO of a different company out there to come in and just fill the shoes. Um, I feel like that just doesn't work as well. I don't know. That's just my thoughts and opinions. Yeah. I mean, in my, in my view, the best businesses are run by the founder who's super passionate about the business and has been there since the beginning, but kind of the second best thing is someone who has been at least working at the company for a long time, for a couple Mm. of decades has worked their way up. Clearly likes their job. Exactly. (laughs) And probably the the second closest to a founder run company or founder CEO company is Mm. one where someone like Andy Jassy has worked in the company for a couple of decades and Jeff Bezos is still staying or and the the founder is still staying in the company kind of advising that person and, and kind right. of helping them out, which is what is happening in, in this situation. So mm. um, the other thing just to mention is that I always like to look at how much shares and how much ownership um, the new CEO oh, has yeah. in the company because, of course, we want our values to be aligned with the management team. Um, and ideally, they're making more money from just growing the business rather than just earning their, their yearly compensation for doing their job job. Mm. Um, and Jazzy has currently, uh, according to the last proxy filing, $340 million worth of Amazon stock. So, uh, his values are probably quite aligned um, mm. with the shareholders. Yeah, That's a significant amount of stock. But um, Jeff Bezos himself will be moving to the executive chairman position. Um, so, the chairman position basically means he's the head of the board of directors. So, he's ultimately in control or the board of directors headed by him is in control of who is in the management team. Um, so, who's the CEO and so on and so forth. Um, but he's also an executive, which means he's still an employee of the company, which indicates that he's likely going to be still working on it day to day in the company. Although right. these positions are kind of, there's not as if you have the title executive chairman and you'd always do the same thing, regardless of what company it is. It's kind of a, a top level position, but what he will specifically be doing is is up to Amazon, really. Um, right. it's, not, it's not a position that has... Um, specific things that people always do if that makes sense but yeah yeah um there's a lot of articles are suggesting that uh and and a statement from bezos himself seem to suggest that he's going to focus more on uh inventions and products and and trying to be i guess more of a an ideas person for the company rather than um being in charge of managing the other executives and all of the other grunt work that goes along with being the ceo um Mm. so now he can kind of step back a little bit think about what where he wants Amazon to go and then he can just advise the CEO and the other management, the, the rest of the people on the management team um, on how to implement the ideas that he has. Yeah. 
that's the gist that I got. Definitely, he he was so, that that letter that he wrote was talking about how, you know, so much of Amazon's success has been inventions and creativeness, and you know, yeah. blah blah blah. That's our big yeah, our big um, that's really our big achievements at Amazon. So it does sound like well, he he clearly still wants to have quite a lot of control over this company, being the executive chairman, who's like the top dog of the board of directors, who are the people that, yeah, as you're saying, control the executive team. Mm. So, um, yeah, I I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I can imagine that he'll just be like the ideas man. It seems like he kind of just wants to step down from the day-to-day grind of all the work of, you know, the, uh, of being the CEO of, you know, doing all the work regarding their operations and blah, blah, blah. He probably just wants to free up his time and be the, the ideas man. But yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I, I guess like, fair enough. Fair enough. He is, uh, he's gotten Amazon to a play, to a very strong competitive position, um, through his work over the last like 20, 25 years. So I think yeah. uh, fair enough if he wants to do what he wants to do. Um, and, you know, maybe he'll do a lot of the stuff he already does. It's just that he's going to be passing down the phone calls and the operations and the going here and there and fixing this and that to somebody else. And he just wants to be the, the top level thinker, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting that the, he they've passed the reins off to the person who has basically been running or very much involved with Amazon Web Services for the past almost two decades now, as mm. that part of the business is really starting to contribute significantly to Amazon's profitability, as, as we'll talk about in just a second. Yep. Um, so, it is interesting that that's kind of the situation because, of course, when Jeff Bezos started Amazon, it was, uh, what, an online book retailer, basically, e-commerce site for books. And then it turned into all kinds of products. And now a big part of their business is this, this cloud computing segment. So um, maybe it's it's possible that Jeff Bezos wants the person running the company to have a very strong background and strong understanding of that part of their business as it continues to grow. And then he can mm. he can step back and, and look and see where he wants the company to go. But um, we can take a look at their earnings, which um, were incredibly impressive <laughs> i'm always right. impressed by uh by amazon's earnings every single quarter their business just continues to grow at a ridiculous rate um and one thing that i noticed and i'm not, I'm not sure if i'd noticed this on their press releases previously but um the first four lines of their this press release for their quarterly earnings was all about cash flow which is just really That's refreshing good. to see <laughs> because most of the time when you open a quarterly earnings you'll see the top line being record EBITDA or record adjusted EPS, like adjusted EPS. Okay. So exactly. Record earnings per share. By the way, we did $50 billion of buybacks in this quarter. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's just refreshing to see a company that has a focus clearly on cash flow, which is ultimately what matters to shareholders. Um, But that was at the start of their their, uh, press release. Free cash flow came in at $31 billion, which was up 20% year over year. Uh, So, that's still growing at a huge rate. uh, And that was driven by revenue growth. Uh, So, revenue came in at uh, $386.1 billion. (laughs) Now, outrageous amount of revenue uh, up 38% year over year. These are for the the full year, by the way, not for the quarter. (laughs) Dude, imagine if they did $386 billion of revenue in a quarter. What Uh, the hell? I wonder like how far into the future will it be before that stat is like 
you know, is something that we'll be saying mm. here on the Young Investors Podcast. Like, is it 30 years? Is it 50 years into the future where Apple will go, oh, we did $380 billion in revenue in the quarter? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Who if, knows? if they That'd continue to grow at 40% per year, it'll be in about yeah. three or four years. But Yeah, yeah um, true. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, crazy, crazy numbers. Um, net income, so their profits uh, came in at $21.3 billion uh, or on a per share basis was $41.83, which was up 82% year over year. So their profit on paper was up massively, but in terms of mm. actual cash flow, it was about 20%, which was yep. more in line with their revenue growth. Um, and Amazon Web Services contributed to more than half of the company's profits uh, during the period. Wow. So um, I think the profits, the operating profit for Amazon Web Services was about $13 billion. So um, right. about 60% of their their profit figure, even though on a revenue basis, it's a fraction of their their business. It's about, um, mm. it, was a, it was a tiny fraction of their business, less than a quarter, less than a fifth. Um, right. So, so what yeah. that just means that the, the, the retail, the online retailer side of the business um, cost them a lot more, I suppose, uh, is lower margin. And then the AWS is much higher margin. Yeah, exactly. I, I think their their physical product business has a profit margin of like less than 3%. Um, right, yeah. So, yeah, yeah that, that business is not very profitable at all, um, but it does generate a substantial amount of revenue and it yeah. obviously contributes to um, a number of other intangible things such as their brand value. Um, yeah. And then... Amazon Web Services, their cloud business is where they're generating significant profits. That's um, their margin, and yeah. revenue yeah. in all of their segments are still growing at 30 to 40%, which is just crazy. Um, even Even their product business was up massively, over 30% Jeez. for the year, which is uh, ridiculous. Um, yeah. As I said. <laughs> it, it, it just blows my mind because they've just been growing at that rate for so long. Um, their, their cash flow has grown at 30 plus percent compounded for 10 years. Mm. And it's, it's very uh, impressive. Yeah. And to still be pulling these numbers now, being one of the biggest companies in the world, is just phenomenal. It's just, it really is phenomenal. I mean, we always talk about the S curve of growth and how as the company gets larger, it slows down. <laughs> that, that thesis has not really held true for a lot of big companies in like the last couple of years. Like some of the yeah. biggest companies in the world are getting like, we always, I, I guess just generally in the stock market, people talk about double digit growth. If mm. you're getting double digit growth, you're doing well. These guys aren't just making, you know, 10%. They're doing 20, 30, 40, 50% growth in a year and they're enormous companies. Yeah. And then it's backing just, it up over multiple years in a row, yeah. which is just an insane feat. It to is. Be able to do it that. really is. It's a, it's a boom time. It's crazy. Yeah. But um, I don't know. Well, good on them. I mean, that's, that's just phenomenal. Yeah. I, I wonder where they'll go from here because I was looking at their price, of course, after this and even after that, a huge increase in profits, 82% increase, they're still at an 80 or more uh, PE ratio. So, a little bit over mm. 80, um, which indicates that even after this huge amount of growth, investors are still probably expecting 30, 40% growth per year for the next five to 10 years. Um, mm. That's what an 80 PE tells you. So, whether that will come to fruition, 
Uh, I don't know. That's a big audacious goal, but I mean, it's hard. You, you never know with these companies. I mean, they just continue to impress sometimes. And, and yeah. while as a value investor, I would never bet on a company making that kind of growth. It's obviously it happens sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes companies it do it. Uh, yep. Not very often, but yeah, uh, it's just do. riskier. Yeah. Riskier betting on if, if people are already expecting, you know, uh, just amazing growth, then mm. it's just risky to invest like that because the yeah. chances are, even if they do, like, you got to think, what are the chances of them actually executing and hitting, you know, 50% growth rate year over year for the next five years? It's like, wow, that's that's a very difficult. That, it's very easy for that not to happen. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and if exactly. it doesn't happen, then, well, it's already priced as though it is going to happen. So, there's only one way for the stock and that's down if it doesn't happen. So, uh, it's just riskier to invest like that. Definitely. Um, yeah. But uh, have we got anything else to talk about for for uh, Amazon earnings, or is that just about it? No, that's just about it for now. Um, All right, yeah. Cool. Where should we go from this? Uh, we should. I guess we'll just do a bit of a GameStop update because mm. we were talking about it last week, weren't we? There's been yes. some interesting, uh, interesting stuff happening. Geez, okay. Where where do I start? Maybe a quick recap for for GameStop. So mm. GameStop, it's a stock that's just exploded. Um, you've written here 1,641 percent in ten days. That is insane. Yeah. Um, so the reason it did that is not because GameStop, the business, was doing particularly well. It's simply <laughs> because uh, some redditors over on Wall Street bets triggered a short squeeze in the stock. Uh, the stock was heavily shorted, like 140% of the shares outstanding were held short, uh, which is just just mind blowing when you think about it. Um, but anyway. They were able to trigger a short squeeze. Uh, then what happened was uh, Robinhood came in and select a few other brokerage sites, Charles Schwab, E-Trade, a couple of other ones I can't remember. Um, anyway, they came in and they uh, halted or they, they, they allowed you to sell your stock if you already had a position in GameStop, but you couldn't buy more shares. So, that just destroyed the buying pressure and the stock price tanked and it has- it has uh, it gone up very it's gone up very quickly and now it's crashed down very quickly it's uh gone from 347 down to about $90 now so mm. it's it's crashed very quickly it's still surprisingly high um but we will have to see what happens over the next uh, what the next few days as well uh so yeah essentially there because Robinhood's really the one that's been in the media yeah. they stopped the buying of GameStop stock and i think now they're starting to allow it again but in small quantities anyway that's uh really led a lot of people to uh question why Robinhood did this and like they they got uh they got over a hundred thousand one star reviews in a single day on the app store <laughs> on the google uh, play store whatever it was um, unfortunately, Google then went and deleted all of those, which is kind of sad, but you know, whatever. I, I, I saw an article that said after that, they received, um, again, over a hundred thousand one-star reviews and they Whoa. left them there. I think oh, it's, right. um, yeah, I, I'll have a look right now. To be, you yeah, you, ha you have story, a look. I was, but no, it's, it's very interesting. I, I'd be interested to see what it says. Uh, Robin Hood is at, I, I don't even know if it would show up. Does the, is, does the Play Store account for being in Australia? Cause uh, Robin not available won't. in Australia. Yeah. Maybe. Anyway, just see if it's there anyway. But yeah. Um, so anyway, long story short, lots of investors super angry at Robinhood because um, when you look into Robinhood's business model, it's hedge funds that provide Robinhood a lot of their revenue. 
um, from uh, the hedge funds buy order flow from Robinhood because Robinhood obviously is brokerage free, so it doesn't make any money off of their users. So they got to make money somehow as a business. Anyway, it was the hedge funds that were getting destroyed from GameStop stock going through the roof because all of those hedge funds were short. Uh, the main one uh, at hand was Citadel. Citadel had a big investment in Melvin Capital that was getting absolutely destroyed because they had a heavy, a big, big short position in GameStop. Anyway, so a lot of people thought that uh, it was rumored, we don't know this, but it's rumored that uh, Citadel flexed its revenue providing muscle, um, uh, flexed its muscle over Robinhood and said, hey, Robinhood, we need you to stop allowing your users to buy GameStop. It's sending the stock price up and that makes us lose a lot of money. Mm. Um, it was a very interesting situation because Robinhood receives its revenue from hedge funds and yet the users of Robinhood were using Robinhood to attack hedge funds. <laughs> it's a very awkward situation. Yeah. Anyway, um, during the week, of all people, Elon Musk gets on this Clubhouse app kind of conference call thing and then he actually gets uh, the CEO of Robinhood on that call and spends about 15 minutes just absolutely grilling the guy, just saying, all right, get to the point. We want to know why were people not allowed to buy their GameStop shares? The people want to know and you have to answer for that and blah, 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 and <laughs> really just put the Robinhood CEO just under the pump. Um, but I have to say that the the more I listened to the Robinhood CEO explain it, the more I kind of believed him because his explanation yeah. was that um, so they have to Robinhood and these other brokerage sites in the US uh, through their financial regulations they have to make deposits at clearing houses uh, for the estimated kind of amount of trading that's going to happen in particular securities. Anyway, uh, the clearinghouse wanted Robinhood to deposit $3 billion on one day um, because of this major, major increase in trading volumes mm. of GameStop stock. Uh, and Robinhood basically said, look, we, we cannot do that. Like in, in Robinhood's history, they've only raised about $2 billion of capital. So um, they essentially had to work with the clearinghouse to figure out a way that they could get that deposit amount down. Um, and the way that that happened was that they agreed to, they said, okay, what's what would be the deposit amount if we said to our users that we, we're not allowing you to buy GameStop? And they said, okay, if you did that, it would be $700 million instead of $3 billion. And for, for, uh, for context, usually the deposit amount is roughly $300 million. So it's, a, it's about 10x higher. The original asking price is about 10x higher than usual. Wow. Um, so eventually they got it down to 700 million, um, which they agreed to. They deposited the funds and um, and then they had to halt the trading or the buying of GameStop uh, as a part of that uh, that deal with the clearinghouse. So what do you think of this? Do you, do you think he's telling the truth here? He yeah. says that Citadel's got nothing to do with it, but uh, Elon Musk certainly wasn't convinced on this call. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I, I think as Elon Musk and, and the, the CEO said on the call, it would be great to see the transparency around the math that's required to figure mm. out what this three billion, what, how much they have to deposit to the clearinghouse. Like, why did it go Definitely. from three billion to 700 million if they restricted shares? Is that, um, is that part of the, dis is it discretionary? Is it up to the clearinghouse? So they just say, yeah, that sounds about right. Or is there like a mathematical formula that, 
would say, okay, if they're not trading it, then the volume would go to this. And then therefore we can, we can only take, we can take a deposit of, of as little as 700 million. That's really the question I think. It is, isn't Um, it? Yeah. And we're never going to get the answer to that. I don't think. What I found really interesting is, I don't know if he was bullshitting, but it seemed as though this, even the CEO of Robinhood didn't quite understand how they come to the, the deposit number. Yeah. Um, because yeah, he was saying you know there's there's he said something like there's the VAR component which is the value at risk, yeah. and then there's also a discretionary component which acts as a multiplier, and then Elon butted in and said wait so discretionary basically just like whatever they think, and he's like yeah look I'm not entirely sure how it works. <laughs> it's like man you're yeah. the CEO of Robinhood and you don't understand how it works that that is surprising. Yeah, um, I, I mean but- he might have a CFO that understands all of that. Part maybe yeah. deeply. Maybe and, I mean, even if you're the CEO of, a, I mean, Robinhood has grown so fast, and he's mm. so young that he is, it, yeah. it, I almost give him the benefit of the doubt for not understanding some things because True. he's he's yeah. in in part obviously he's the CEO of a huge company that's thinking about going public, but the other side of it is. He's the CEO of a company that's just exploded probably f- far beyond his expectations and he's probably had to learn and he's been in cat probably been in catch up mode trying to stay on top of the business you know over the past couple of years so in that way I kind of understand maybe he just doesn't get some of these things maybe he just they're just too complicated for him and he has someone in his team that does that w- with him but then also I I see what you're saying that you know it's it's strange that he wouldn't know that um, mm. I, I don't know where I sit, wh- which side you would think he would have to know something like that, but maybe it hasn't been an issue up until, well, I presume it hasn't been an issue up until now. So, um, yeah. maybe this is the first time he's really starting to look into the maths behind that. Potentially. Part of the business. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, in, in this interview and it's, uh, if, if you wanted to go and listen to it, um, I've put up a video of the interview on my channel if you wanted to watch through, but it gets to a point where Elon's like, yeah, okay, so what about this Citadel business? You know, do you guys have to, you know, are you guys in bed with Citadel? And basically the CEO just came out and said, look, that's been a rumor and it's just false. And he just kind of left it at that. He said he has no reason to believe um, why Citadel would do something like that, which is like, well, come on, they give you so much of your revenue, but whatever. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and he kind of just left it that. He said, no, that's a rumor and that's just false. And then Elon was just like, oh, all right, all right, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, uh, look, I I really wish that I knew how this whole clearing clearing house deposit system worked but unfortunately i i i do not know that is too deep for my understanding um and it seems like it's very hard i'm trying to figure it out and i even asked people to you know explain it to me if they knew in the in that video that i put out and no one's really understood it so far so if you if you maybe know how it works then please let us know but um yeah yeah seems uh seems interesting and man it'll just be uh, interesting to know what the truth is because I know the mm. truth will come out eventually um, and it will just be interesting to see who was at fault in this whole situation or or who who, who was who was the reason behind um, people not being able to buy GameStop. Mm. Anyway, 
that's something that we'll just have to wait and see for. Yeah. <clears throat> Either way, the stock is getting smashed. I think it's down 75%. It is. <laughs> but I think everybody, even the Wall Street bets people would have seen that coming. I mean, what goes up <laughs> must come down, especially uh, in a failing business like GameStop. Brandon, anyway. you have too much faith. I've watched too yeah. many. I watched too many YouTube videos of people talking about GameStop this week. And a lot of them, a lot of people were buying at 200 yeah. level, 250. It's insane. Um, it's insane. Yeah. But to be honest, I if that's the case, I just hope that they're buying for the meme. I hope that they're not buying for the business because if you're buying for the business, like I hope that if you're buying at 250 or 300 bucks, you're just doing it to say, you know, I don't care if I lose this money. I just want to try and, you know, F you to the hedge funds kind of thing. Um, because if if you're investing at 300 and you're hoping that it's going to go up to 500, if you're someone that's thinking like that, please stop investing in the share market. <laughs> get out now. Yeah, get out while you still can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, that's that's the update for GameStop. Hmm. Um, Very good. What a what a bizarre kind of situation. It's nothing I've ever seen before. Yeah. I don't think I've seen like a properly true short squeeze and everything that's happened as a result of that. I've just never seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. We've never seen a case where it's 100% a short squeeze, just like pumping the stock up. We've seen cases where stocks have gone up a lot and, you know, people will speculate, okay, part of that's a short squeeze. Yeah. And the short interest has gone down. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it's been a crazy ride. And I wonder if we will just continue to see cases of this because I'm sure now that this one has been seen... A lot of people are looking at other companies that are small and that have high number of shares held short. Um, mm. Anything above 100% would seem, and a small company with low volume would seem to indicate that a similar effect could be could be achieved. So, uh, yeah. I wonder if we'll see more of those. Um, Imagine if you were just like a shorting hedge fund right now. Like that's just what you did. That's like your jam. It's like I just short stocks. Oh, if no. I was like the head of a shorting hedge fund, I'd just be like, guys, I think we just have to disappear for a little while. <laughs> sell everything. Sell everything, you know, or rather cover all of our shorts, mm. how I should say that. Uh, cover all of our shorts and we'll just come back in a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, whenever when this is all blown over. Uh, cause it's not just GameStop, you know, like AMC yeah. and a select other very you know, heavily, sh- yeah, Blackberry heavily shorted stocks have just been destroyed as well doing mm. the same thing. But, um, yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, you want to talk about Google? Yes. Earnings? Yeah. We'll talk about Google. Yeah. So, um, Google of course reported their full year and fourth quarter results. So we'll go through some components of both of those. Uh, revenue for the full year came in at $182 billion which was up 12.7% year over year. So Google's growth is beginning to to kind of come back to earth. Although mm. double digit growth is still super impressive. Um, yeah. But they are kind of coming off the last few years where they've, they were growing at 25, 30% per year. But yeah, yeah. Um, operating profit came in at $41.2 billion, which was up 20% year over year, still growing at a crazy rate, 20%. Um, so they're, Profit margins improved during that period as well, which allowed them to grow profits at a higher rate than revenue. Yeah. Um, and then there's some interesting things to talk about in the fourth quarter specifically. So uh, in the fourth quarter, revenue was up, uh, revenue came in at 56.9 billion, up 24% uh, year over year. So um, in that particular quarter, they actually saw a huge increase in revenue. 
And that was mostly driven by, uh, well, there was a big increase in, in search, but also in YouTube ads, uh, which is wow. obviously always interesting to talk about. So YouTube ad revenue came in at 6.9 billion, which was up 46% year over year Jeez. for the quarter. So uh, a lot of people are spending money on YouTube ads. Mm. <laughs> Although one thing... Um Oh, I guess that's that's just, this is just fourth quarter. Yeah, we're not talking about full year anymore, are we? So, because no. that's the thing I was potentially going to bring up is when did YouTube decide, or when yeah, did Google decide they were going to put multiple ads at the start of the video? You know how we used to only just get one at the mm. start of the video. Now there's like two. Yeah. Uh, so double. So if you get two times the ads, two times the revenue, so on. But uh, that wouldn't hold true in this case because it's only the fourth quarter we're looking at. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that is true. It's just been this slow progression of of more and more ads. First there yeah. was one in the middle, one at the start, one at the end, and then now it's yeah. two every time there's an ad break. Yeah. The day that they go to three. That's going to be a sad day. I'll actually- that's the, Yeah. That's the thing I'm wondering is how many ads before the user experience is so bad? And this this will be the, the, the question at Google as well, like no doubt. How many ads before the user experience is so bad that a competitor could quickly rise up um, if they just offer some sort of no ad service, yeah. I suppose? I, I, I feel like it's not that many ads because- mm. I mean, television programs have a lot of ads. What do they usually do? Like a minute or two minutes, two minute ad breaks, like quite a long ad break. Oh, even longer than that. Yeah. But their programs are also quite long. Like a lot of the time you're, you're, we will get now, you could get, you could get 20 to 30 seconds of ads in the, a couple of times in a 15 minute video, depending on how Mm. many ads the, the channel puts in there. So it can already be quite a lot. I'll be very disappointed when they go to three, even though I think if they go to three, we'll probably be making more money, but it'll just yeah. be sad. I don't want to see three ads after watching five minutes of a of a YouTube video. Yeah, exactly. That's too much. And the other thing is thinking about this, how, how many videos have you seen where it's just a really viral video and because it's gone super viral, like the content creator has just made an ad break literally every 30 seconds. Yeah. Or you're like listening to a one hour podcast and they've, you look at that progress bar down the bottom, the play bar, and you can see like 50 yellow dots. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God, that, that makes me just instantly click away. In fact, that yeah. makes me a little bit angry. <laughs> yeah, it does. Like, Do- yeah, when- someone's done that it's just like 50 ads it's just terrible oh do you ever use youtube's automatic ad placements or do you always do manual no i always do manual ad placements i just don't trust youtube's ad placements enough their ad placements are terrible yeah um yeah the, the the general way i do it is for a video that's for a video that's under 10 minutes i'm only ever going to put like one ad break in yeah if it's 15 minutes, I'll generally put one at around the four minute mark and then not one until the very end of the video. Right. So, you've basically watched the whole video before you see that other ad break. Yeah. Because um, I usually do kind of like an outro. So, I might just put it before the outro. So, you've you've actually watched like the whole bulk of the video before you see the second ad break. Yes. Um, and apart, I, I don't think I put, I might put one at the vet, like at the at the actual very, very end of the video, mm. um, which won't impact people's viewing experience. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think I ever put like more than two um, 
ads within the content. Yeah. Because uh, otherwise I find like just from personal experience when I'm watching content, if I'm seeing like three, four, five ad breaks during a 15, 20 minute video, that is really annoying. It's just irritating. Yeah. Yeah. Like two ad breaks I can understand because it's like fair enough, the content creator has to make money. I mean, this is like their livelihood. Um, and at the same time, two ad breaks with skippable it's, it's in a 15 minute space. It's not too annoying for mm. me. But once it starts, yeah, like I said, three, four, five, it's just like, oh, this yeah. makes me rage. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to put one for every five and a half to six minutes of the video. So oh, okay. if there's if it's right. like if it's a 10 minute video, there'll be one. There'll be one ad in the middle and then one at right. the start. But yeah, the automatic placement is just ridiculous. Um, I don't know if you've if you've ever looked, but if you put automatic placement, they put ads every two and a half to three minutes. Really? Which is why a lot of the time you'll see um, videos that have all of those little yellow lines. That sucks. Because they've done a- uh, automatic um, placement by YouTube. Um, and Man, YouTube's yeah. really selling out. God damn. Yeah. So, but I, I don't know how it actually functions, their their feature. I don't know if they do, they're doing that on purpose or whether they're just looking for gaps in the content, like in the video Maybe where the- it, there's pauses mm. and then... It, it so maybe one there. person's video just ends up having a lot of natural pauses exactly, or gaps yes. where they just slot it in based on their algorithm detecting a, an, a, an ad spot. Yeah, I don't know. But maybe. either way, their automatic placement is useless. I wish it was good. I wish you could set some parameters to it. Like I don't want more mm. than one ad every five minutes or every yeah. six minutes. And then based yeah. on that, it figures out, okay, where's the best spots? Okay, 10 minute video, you put one ad in the middle. Or like, mm. you know, your watch time usually is about 40% retention. So, we'll put one 40% of the way in kind of thing. So, most people watch it. I don't know. Yeah. Like, it could be much smarter than what it is, I feel. Yeah. It's not very smart. But yeah. either way, they're making a lot of money. And um, they uh, <laughs> they spoke about what drove uh, their YouTube revenue. Um, so, it's been driven by... And this has been a, a continuing theme throughout 2020. But um, it's been driven by direct response ads uh, while brand advertising was cut back during the pandemic. So, for those who are not aware, there's two major types of advertising. Uh, brand advertising is kind of uh, where it's just brand awareness. So, McDonald's ads, Pepsi ads, where they're just kind of telling you about the brand and making you feel good good yeah. uh, and direct response ads are where they're trying to get you to take an action from the ad. So, click here and join our email list or click here right. and go straight to the website and buy this thing for 30% off. Those are direct response ads um, and those have been doing very, very well for, for YouTube's business um, during 2020. And it kind of makes sense because during the pandemic, a lot of businesses started to see lower revenues. They started to struggle and businesses will look for areas where they can cut costs, where they're not really seeing any direct um, results from them. And one of those areas is brand advertising, right? McDonald's can spend a ton of money on billboards and on YouTube ads and on TV ads, but there's no real way for them to see direct results from those ads converting into people spending money at McDonald's because there's no real direct link, right? If Mm. you see a Coca-Cola ad, um, that might incentivize you to buy a Coke in a week's time or something or when you're at the shops, but there's no direct link between you, the purchase and the ad. Whereas um, with direct response ads, there is a direct connection. You can do the maths on it. You can see, okay, I spent this much on ads. I got this many sales. Um, Interesting. So, businesses tend to cut the brand advertising first. It's an area where it's kind of just extra spending when they're doing well because it does obviously contribute to their business, but not in any direct um, numerical way. Um, But that's pretty much been what's happening with YouTube ads in uh, 
in 2020. So very interesting. Interesting mm. to see if that continues to, to grow at a ridiculous rate. I think at this point, it seems like um, a lot of businesses are now starting to shift their television ads onto YouTube. You can even just see it with the quality of YouTube ads. Um, you mm. see a lot of very typical ads that you would have seen on the television now yeah, on YouTube. Exactly. Yep. Um, very high production ads. So, uh, yep. yeah, we'll kind of just see how that goes. Um, in terms of other segments, uh, Google, Google Cloud was up 46%. So that part of their business continues to grow at a huge rate as well. Yeah, it's crazy. Ridiculous. And uh, the other major number to focus on is traffic acquisition costs, which is the money that they have to pay to, to businesses and, and, and other people uh, in order to um, generate the ad revenue that they, they achieve. So, um, f- for example, they pay us uh, YouTubers um, yep. for, for running ads on our YouTube. So, we get a 50-50, something like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, so, appreciate that. that came in at $10.5 billion, which was up 23% uh, year over year. So Impressive. Um, yeah. Nice. Very impressive stats. Yeah. Yeah, true. It's so funny because it's like traffic acquisition costs. Like as a shareholder, I'm just like, oh, we want that to go down at the same time. I'm like, wait, no, I want that to go up. (laughs) That's how I make money. (laughs) This quarter, we decided to change our contract with YouTube channels. We're now giving them 10 cents on the dollar. (laughs) That's great. I'm going to make so much more on my Google stock now. Oh, wait, no. (laughs) My business. No. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. So um, that's pretty much all I had for Google. The stock was up 7% on the results, which is uh, obviously a lot. Very interesting to see that Google uh, was uh, Google investors were very um, happy about their results, whereas on the Facebook side, nothing really happened, even though both mm. businesses performed quite well um, just yeah. from looking at the numbers. But uh, True, actually. Mm. Yeah. Weird. Very, the stock market. What a weird place it is. Yeah. It's so weird that it... it they it's not efficient it's not (laughs) i think he said like the exact same thing last week when we're talking about wall street bets too yeah (laughs) that's like your little that's like your little pet peeve isn't it i hate people i hate people people trying to tell you that the stock market's efficient it's just ridiculous every single week you find something that happens that just shows you it's not efficient like yeah. you would actually have to be insane. You would actually have to be someone who just read the textbook and never actually looked at the stock market yeah. in order to believe that markets are always didn't, efficient. Um, didn't the the dude behind the actual hypothesis, the efficient market hypothesis, actually like um, s- step back on what he proposed and like down the track he said, no, what I really meant was the stock market is efficient most of the time. <laughs> Whereas he was like pushing that it was always efficient and then he was yeah. like, oh, actually, I'm totally wrong there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the that's the consensus agreement yeah. now, which I think is pretty fair that most of it the time fair, yeah. the stock market reflects publicly available information. Um, yeah. spring- some of the time it doesn't. And yeah, and sprinkled <laughs> with some speculation and sometimes there's a lot of speculation. Um, but yeah, exactly. it, it's interesting that that's the common consensus, but at the same time, funds still use formulas that rely on an entirely efficient market. Yeah. Which to me, that is ridiculous. But bizarre. We'll save that rant Stupid. for another day. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't get into the efficient market hypothesis rant for another couple of weeks, Hamish. Yeah. Not yet. I'm going to ban you from making any reference to efficient market hypothesis for the next month. Okay. All right. <laughs> if I accidentally slip up, you can just, we'll just bleep it out. 
Yeah, exactly right. Uh, all right, let's move on to this last news story. Is yeah. it the last one we've got to talk about? Yeah, yes. we've worked through everything else. Um, so this is just like a little bit of an update. From It's kind of funny, actually. You know how we're talking about the news media bargaining code mm. a couple weeks back, I think it was? We spoke about it last we week as have, well. Yeah, we might have touched on it last week as well. We've got even more updates. Mm. <laughs> Headline reading, Microsoft backs media bargaining code suggests Bing uh, can fill gap if Google and Facebook depart. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> oh, you know, you know it's getting bad now when we're starting to talk about Bing replacing Google. Ay, 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 ay. Uh, so, Google and Facebook have warned they could withdraw or limit their Australian services if the code is introduced, forcing them to pay for news content. Uh, Microsoft President Brad Smith said he and CEO, uh, how do you pronounce the CEO's name? Natya Nadella? I have no idea. Satya, sorry, Satya Nadella. Yeah. I think so. Spoke with Prime Minister Scott Morrison last week. Sorry? Of course he did. Of course, he yeah, spoke of course. With the prime minister. What a yeah, he's got to get his got to get his elbows out. Have you ever used in there. Bing? <laughs> yeah, Scott Morrison. Let me tell you about. I tell you what, Scott Morrison. The Australian government's probably like, oh, what is Bing? Please tell us about this Bing service. I've not heard of it before. <laughs> I don't use Google, so I'd quite like to n- learn more about this Bing. <laughs> anyway, it says here. Uh, so this uh, Microsoft president Brad Smith said while uh, Microsoft was not covered by the current legislation, it would be willing to follow the proposed rules. He says, quote, the code reasonably attempts to address the bargaining power imbalance between digital platforms and Australian news uh, businesses. False. I do not agree with that statement, but I can understand why he made that statement yeah. if he's hmm. trying to schmooze the Australian government. <laughs> Um, but then furthermore, yeah, hold, hold on, Hamish. Just breathe. A couple of deep breaths, mate. A couple of deep breaths here. Uh, asked earlier in the week, uh, asked earlier this week, uh, here we go, asked earlier this week about Google's threat to withdraw from Australia. Mr. Morrison said Microsoft would be pretty happy if they did. <laughs> no <laughs> shit. Um, talking to Satya, who runs Microsoft, Bing would go off, oh. he told Sky News. Oh dear, god damn, why why is Australia run by such incompetent people? Um the code was proposed following years and years of complaints from traditional media outlets that social media platforms benefit from the work of journalists without compensation. Facebook and Google continue to argue correctly that media organization the correctly was my little addition there. <laughs> correctly that media organizations benefit from referrals and clicks through their websites. Oh Oh my God. Just imagine, imagine Australia where all of the access, all of the Google searching instead fed you through Bing instead. Oh, oh my God. I think that would, I would, I would be, I would move to the United States. I think that's the last straw. (laughs) Yeah. I just don't want to use Bing. It's not like I've been stopped. Uh, There's nothing preventing me from using Bing right now. I just, I just don't don't, don't want to. Nobody wants to. It's terrible. I mean, the CEO basically admitted that it would be terrible in this article by saying Bing would get a lot better if we were able to, you know, take Google's place in Australia. He's basically saying, yes, it's crap. But if this worked, you know, if this went through, he actually said that we would make significant investment into improving Bing. We don't want that. We just want a search engine that works. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, 
But really? <laughs> like, they're really happy to be a part of this code? Like, because they're not in the code at the moment, right? I think it's only for Google and Facebook. So, mm. if based on how the code is written right now, Bing would not be required to pay for, for news articles uh, in, the way that, said, in the way that Google and, and Facebook would have to. They said that they'd be happy they even be if happy they were to, covered. So I they? think they must, have just, they must have just crunched the numbers and said that, okay, well, if Bing gets a massive opportunity to become Australia's search engine, then maybe that's worthwhile for us to just cop paying media outlet sites in Australia, you know, a couple hundred million dollars or whatever it is. Right. Maybe they've just run the numbers and thought, okay, the opportunity outweighs the cost kind of thing. Yeah. Does Bing run ads? They must run ads, right? I don't, surely. I, I don't know, but I mean, surely all of them do, right? Yeah, but, they'd um, have to. They would anyway. Have to. Very strange. Um, God, Jesus flipping frustrates me. God damn. Anyway. Yeah. There's a there's a little update. I don't know how much more we can say on this based on what we've already said in the last few podcasts, but God, I just please, fingers crossed that the news media bargaining code does not get through. Please. Please. Yeah. Please. For the sake of uh, consumer experiences around Australia, please don't let this go through. And plus, it's just like another win for media outlets, which I already hate. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Anyway, anything more to add on this or we'll move on to a couple of Q&A questions? Um, no, I don't. I think I've said my piece on this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the I think we've both weeks. said our piece. We're, we're kind of restraining ourselves because we know we've already said our piece. We're, we're just going to say the same piece again. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. No, but we should, um, yeah. we've probably got time for a couple of Q&A questions here. Um, All right, cool. As always, if you have more questions, guys, head over to the YouTube version of the podcast at youtube.com forward slash the young investors podcast and leave your questions on the latest episode and we'll try mm. to get through as many as possible do you have a preference for question uh yeah. i don't know maybe one of these two maybe this one here this is a good one okay um hi guys uh, regular listener here from spain hello spain hello spain listeners <laughs> spanish viewers Woohoo! Go Spain! Uh, love the content thank you very much uh the fundamentals behind it and everything uh sweet big kudos to words. both of you yes thank you very much um but i have one question i would love to hear your thoughts about it uh for a relatively young investor a couple of years in the stock market only would you recommend deep value investing in other words cigar, uh, cigar but investing as a strategy in some cases or, uh, or any of you two have ever used uh, the last puff idea in any of your investments as Buffett did in the beginning uh, to grow faster? Or would you prefer even in an early phase to stick with value investing, uh, margin of safety, rule one, etc., and slow compounding? Big thanks. So, Mm. The question really is uh, when you're young, like Buffett did when he was young, should you be looking at these cigar butt investments, finding businesses that are on their last legs, but can be purchased at a deep, One last puff. deep discount? One last puff. Yeah, um, no, that's, that's not the way I go about it at all, to be honest. Mm. Um, even being... Uh, look, I, I don't. I don't think you have you have to go that way because yeah, the the argument from Buffett in the early days, which he's since kind of backtracked, is that you know he finds a lot of these small businesses that you know you can squeeze a little bit out of them and you can grow your money faster. But even throughout his life, he's he's changed and he's gone on the record multiple times saying, yeah, that's what I thought. But now, as I've learned more, it's much better just to go with high quality businesses and think about holding them for the long term. Mm. And you know, you can still get great returns 
returns. Like you can still make a lot of money investing in established high quality businesses that are growing well. And there are a lot of those businesses out there at the moment. Yes, they're expensive, but that's the thing. If you can find one that you can buy at a uh, you know at a discount to intrinsic value, then you can get a great deal, and you can uh, snowball your money quite quickly. Yeah. Uh, so to be honest, I one of the key things in my strategy is uh, understanding the business, finding a competitive advantage, and checking the management team. And those three things bundle together to assess whether the business is high quality. And I only look to invest in the high quality businesses, not the ones that are going down and might have one last puff in them, you know? Um, So, that's personally how I go about it. Um, What do you think? Yeah, I think it just makes a lot more sense. I mean, from a money perspective, I think um, protecting your downside from the very beginning is a very sound way to go about it. Um, Mm. But there's also an ethical side to it as well. And I don't know if this played a role in in Buffett's experience himself, but um, with Berkshire Hathaway, which was pretty much the biggest and last cigar butt type of investment that he made in that... um, What's the what's the name of the type of the business? I'm just blanking. Textile textile business. Um, through that through Berkshire Hathaway, he of course was trying to do a cigar butt type of business, but he found out that he ended up trying to grow that business because he discovered that the town in which that um, that business sat was heavily reliant on on the well, a lot of the people who lived there were heavily heavily reliant on the plant um, for for jobs, and he ended up um, getting a lot of backlash actually for for laying off a for laying off thousands of jobs um, in, in that industry. Um, so there's kind of an ethical side to it as well. Like it's, I think it makes a lot more sense to invest in businesses that you believe in that have mm. good values and, and, uh, that are likely going to grow in the future and not only benefit the shareholders, but also the employees and all of the other stakeholders around it. But, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I personally, um, I'm not a cigar, but investor, um, just yeah. looking at, at um, really good companies and trying to get them at a, at a good price, I think is a mm. good way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, all right. Should we do one more? Yeah. Where should we go? Uh, how about I'll, I'll ask you this one here. Um, hey, gents. Uh, thanks for all your material. No worries. I was wondering how can how can I invest in China from Australia? Tapping into a non-English speaking country is out of my circle of competence. So, I wonder if it is worth looking at investing into Australian companies that say export to China or researching if there are any China-based ETFs that are safe to invest in. You're able to mention your opinion um, on how to get started investing in China. Mm. What What's your kind of approach? Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to, I think I've probably mentioned this um, a, few, a few times, but um, when it comes to businesses in emerging markets, a lot of the time they're going to be in countries where the legal system is different, the government's different, and probably most importantly, the culture is different. And when I don't have an understanding of those things, which I think are really, really important for picking individual businesses, I, I want to go broad. So investing in a basket yeah. of businesses that will benefit, will therefore I'll benefit from the growth of that economy, say China, for example, rather than trying to pick out a business that will do well in a, in a country that I, I don't really understand the, what the customs are like, what how people how consumers behave in that country, and then how the government dictates rules and that sort of thing. Um, so I personally, if I was looking for to invest in China. 
I would be looking at something like a uh, an emerging markets ETF, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. at the moment is mostly China. Um, you'll get some India, you'll get Taiwan and a couple of other smaller emerging markets, but any emerging markets ETF will be probably 40% China at the moment. Um, yeah. So uh, that's what I would do. Um, yeah. In terms of- And I think- you, know, you go on. Sorry. I was just going to say, and I think that's a totally reasonable way of going because you can argue that, oh, you know, I don't know anything about China. I've never been to China, you know, Chinese business, geez, I don't know what the rules and regulations are. But at the same time, I know that China is the second largest global economy and it's growing very quickly, much quicker than most other economies around the world. So, I still want maybe some exposure to that. So, I think what you're saying there is 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 uh, is valid mm. in just own the basket, own China, you know, own Chinese business, not just, you know, owning Alibaba or something. Yeah. And, you know, that's even you look at some of the like the best hedge, uh, biggest hedge fund of the world, Bridgewater associates, Ray Dalio, he is so big on China. And yes, they do have a couple of individual positions, but a major part of their equity holdings is Chinese-based ETFs, you know, um, you know, China large cap and China mid cap, those sort of ETFs where you're just getting that broad exposure to China, you know, it's not mm. like I'm picking Alibaba, this, that, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I think that was valid. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, what no, that's all right. Um, the only other thing I would add to that is uh, just, I guess, just an example of, of how different cultures can, um, I guess, how different consumer behavior can be in different countries um, for, for the same product. Starbucks, I think, is an excellent example. Huge in the United States tried to build themselves out in Australia and struggled um, for for the most part. They're kind of trying to come back now. In Europe, Mm. Starbucks is not very popular again. In Europe and in Australia, coffee is kind of, we're much more into like specialty coffee, like smaller, unique coffee shops rather than big chains um, like they are in the US. But then in China, Starbucks is doing very, very well. So, mm. it, depending on where the business is operating, different cultures will will be behave differently to the same products. Um, and having that kind of disconnect can make it tricky to, to invest. Even if you're looking from Australia into the US, it can be tricky sometimes. Um, yeah, but I true. think certainly into cultures where it's very, very different, or I would imagine at least, I honestly don't know, <laughs> um, but I would imagine the culture around a lot of consumer goods would be very different in Asia than it is in in other countries. But um, mm. yeah, that's just, that's the last thing I had to add on that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I agree. Um, nothing more to add with that. I think we covered all bases on that question, which is good. All right. I think that's uh, just about mm. us for today. Um, we'll wrap things up. Thanks as always, guys, for first of all, for listening. Um, we certainly appreciate the hour of your time that you give us every week. Um, and also thank you for sending in your questions. And yes. if you, as Hamish said before, if you've got a question, make sure you head over to the YouTube version of the podcast. Um, just type in Young Investors Podcast into YouTube and go to the most recent upload and leave us your question, discussion topic, whatever you like. Um, and make sure you leave a like while you're there mm-hmm. <laughs> and <do>. subscribe. <laughs> uh, but I think that'll just about do us for today. Um, that Man, we had a lot to talk about today and I imagine next week we're going to have a lot as well. Just keep rolling with these company earnings and all, all this other business. GameStop will probably still be something to talk about next week. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, but yeah, thanks guys very much for listening. Thanks to ShareSite for sponsoring and we'll mm-hmm. see you guys in the next episode. See you guys. Bye.